Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 51, by any other name. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray, and my descendants will complete the podcast journey laid out before us. And I'm John Champion, and my descendants will make fun of Ken's descendants along the podcast journey laid out before us. And really, I would have it no other way. This week, the name of the show is By Any Other Name, and that's the name of it, no matter what other name you try to give it. Hey, John, what's the name of next week's show? I don't know. Third, Third base. base. Uh, yeah, it's Abbott and Costello meet Captain Kirk. <laughs> Except Abbott and Costello had timing. We've got timing. Yes, we do. Uh, it's just not in sync, but you know, we'll work yeah. on it. Maybe maybe our, our grandchildren's grandchildren will have this together <laughs> by the time uh, by the time this show is over. Hey, if they will you're be genetically programmed for they, comic timing. Well, they may great. they may or may not be, but we can get to that later. <laughs> uh, if your grandchildren's grandchildren would like to get to. Uh, Get in touch with us, by the way. There are a few ways that they can do that. Or heck, if you want to, why don't you do it? Uh, Facebook, Skype, and Twitter at the handle Mission Log Pod. Or you can call us, 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. And don't forget to check out our swanky space on the web, missionlogpodcast.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. It has come to that time, Ken. I, I would hate to cut you off when we're uh, doing our, our plea to our listeners to get back to us, but I'm, I'm, I'm champing at the bit here, chomping at the bit, because I feel the need to do some trivia. Go ahead, please. Uh, hit us with that trivia thing that you do. Okay, well, today's episode, by any other name, was written by Jerome Bixby and DC Fontana, Dorothy Fontana. Jerome Bixby, you may remember, wrote Mirror, Mirror. And uh, you may also remember that I mentioned that uh, the last production that we have from Jerome Bixby uh, was actually produced uh, posthumously was uh, The Man from Earth, uh, which also features some uh, Star Trek veterans within that. Uh, So I do recommend that movie as well. And we will see his name pop up again in the future in other Star Trek episodes. Um, Now, speaking of the writer, speaking of Jerome Bixby, uh, our discovered document to go along with this episode is the second story draft, and we'll have that posted on the website for everybody to have a look at. And this, you know, it was hard to quantify from one draft to another uh, for all the episodes we've been looking at. This may just be the most different from the final aired episode of any that I've looked at. It's really kind of remarkable. Um, the, the whole wrap-up, the, the way that the Enterprise crew is able to get away from their captors in this entirely different, slightly similar theme, uh, uh, but the way that plays out is entirely different. There are characters who are in the draft who are not in the final show at all. There are characters in the final show who are not in the draft at all. Um, it really plays out remarkably different. So I encourage everybody to have a look at it and uh, just try to connect the dots <laughs> between that and what ended up in the final show. 
it's kind of cool to see that slice inside the production of Star Trek. Um, I want to mention uh, a couple of the guest stars on the show. Uh, Warren Stevens, who plays Rojan, was a big, big TV guest star. He did all the major shows in the 60s and 70s. And he also played Doc in Forbidden Planet. And as we well know, uh, Forbidden Planet was a huge influence on what then became Star Trek, just kind of doing a little more serious, a little more cerebral science fiction. Uh, so do check that out. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it is an excellent movie. Um, by the way, also, I want to mention uh, that Rojan should not be confused with the gorilla monster, Roman. Have you seen the movie Robot Monster? Um, I've seen, you know, the robot monster. So basically, he's like a guy in a gorilla suit with a diving helmet. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, I, I, I did, that, that's Roman. I yeah. did not know that because, no, I've never yeah. seen the movie. I've just seen, you know, that, yeah, that picture that, you know, is sometimes used in commercials. It's sometimes used in, like, you know, B-movies about B-movies. But no, right. I've never actually seen the, I've never seen, never seen the movie. For, for some reason, Roman just has, like, this indelible mark on my brain. So whenever I listen to them say the name Rojan, I kept thinking, no, 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 he's not a guy in a gorilla suit with a diving helmet. Um, I also want to mention Barbara Boucher, who plays Kalenda. Uh, she is still, as of this recording, acting. She is still a working actress. And she appeared as Moneypenny. Did you ever see the, the 1967 Casino Royale, the James Bond parody movie? I I think I have, but I don't remember her from that. Well, so you, you had uh, every actor and actress playing James Bond. You know, that was kind of the gimmick of the movie. You had Peter Sellers, you had Woody Allen. The movie's kind of a mess, but it's a fun mess. Uh, but you had one money penny, and, uh, and she was played by the fabulously beautiful Barbara Boucher in a movie full of fabulously beautiful women like Ursula Andress. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was one of the things that I definitely remember her from. And we also have to mention kind of a strange bit of trivia in this episode. This is the first and only female redshirt death in Star Trek, the original series. But soft, what sound through yonder silence breaks? It is Ken, ready to recap the episode. Prologue. Kirk, Spock, McCoy, a red shirt and a red skirt beam down to an unnamed planet. No signs of life, which is odd since they were responding to a distress call. Then the red skirt does get a reading. A couple of humanoids, a man and a woman by the looks of it, approach pretty much out of nowhere. The man thanks them for responding to their distress call so quickly, and now he'd like Kirk to surrender the Enterprise to him. Kirk begins the slightest of protests when the man and woman activate devices on their belts, completely paralyzing the Starfleet officers. Now a little exposition. He's Rojan of Kelva. The female is Kalinda. Rojan is their commander from now on. Try anything, and they'll be punished. Now, let's leave the galaxy. Act 1. The stranger said to relieving the Enterprise contingent of their weapons and communicators. Then more monologuing from Rojan. This thing on my belt, it's a neural field generator. Radiates from a central projector. Kind of jams your neural impulses. I can do that anytime I want. And now, I will release you. Q&A with Rojan reveals that he and his are from the galaxy Andromeda. They need the Enterprise to get back there. The Kelvin Empire is looking for a new galaxy to inhabit because within 10 millennia... High levels of radiation will make life there totally impossible. And your galaxy is awesome. 
So we're going to conquer and occupy it, starting with the Enterprise. Actually, we started with the Enterprise. While we've been down here gabbing, my, let's call them people, have been taking over your ship, which we then get to watch happen. Kirk argues against the apparent course of action. It'll take thousands of years to get to Andromeda from here. Well, no, says Rojan. It'll only take about 300 years. We're going to soup up the Enterprise. We'll also make it so the ship can pass through the energy barrier at the edge of your galaxy. Kind of wish we'd done that to our ship now that I think about it. That's what destroyed it. Oh, and we're all going to die on the way to Andromeda, which is cool. Our descendants will complete the mission, just as we completed this part of the mission started by our ancestors. Hey, I got an idea, says Kirk. Let's try diplomacy. We'll take your problem to the Federation. I'm sure we could find planets for you to live on with all this conquering business. Yeah, that sounds cool, but conquering's actually what we do. And now Kalinda will show you to your cell while we prepare your ship. Rojan and Hanar, one of the underlings, talk about how awesome it'll be to be back in space and how weird it is in these bodies with the feeling and the hearing and the touching. But the ship was designed with human forms in mind, so they'll have to stay human on the journey back to Andromeda. In their cell, the people of the Enterprise evaluate their situation. They're being held in a cell with practically indestructible bars. The people holding them are too perfect to actually be people. If they could get their hands on one of those paralysis devices, they might be able to figure out where the central projector is and knock it out of commission. Hey Spock, remember that time on MNER 7 when you mind-probed the guard outside the cell and letting us out? Want to try that again? Ugh, it doesn't go so well this time, though. Spock is thrown across the cave, repelled by the attempted probe. Kalinda comes in to see what happened and is overpowered by Kirk. He knocks her unconscious and takes her neural field thingy. They escape, only to be frozen within seconds by Hanar and his neural field thingy. Rojan says this will have to be punished. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are needed in Rojan's estimation, but the red shirt and the red skirt are unnecessary. You can tell because you never met them before. And they're wearing red. Now watch as Hanar turns them into handheld styrofoam blocks. That's step one of killing them. Step two is crushing the styrofoam block. Like this. We don't have to kill them, by the way. We can bring them back to life, unless they're crushed. Hanar restores Shay, the red shirt. No more red skirt, though. To dust, she has returned. Act two. Back in their cell, Spock is trying to piece together what he saw in the mind probe. Colors, shapes, equations. It's all a blur. The only thing that's not a blur? The image of immense beings. 100 limbs which resemble tentacles. Minds of such control and capacity that each limb is capable of performing a different function. I don't know about you, but I hear the call of Cthulhu. Anyway, that's what the Kelvins are, naturally. Kirk has a plan. Spock will build something to jam the neural field generator. Bones and Spock will need to get to the ship. But how? Kirk has another plan. Spock, throw yourself into a meditative torpor. We'll tell the Kelvins that you're sick, and they'll let you and McCoy go to the Enterprise to make you better. Amazingly, that works. Aboard the Enterprise, Bones tells the Kelvin guard that Spock will be fine in a couple of hours, though Spock's actually already conscious and ready to start working on the neural jammer... jammer. Planet side, Rojan wants to talk over Kirk's duties with him. Kirk says his duties are to his crew and his mission, not Rojan's. Dude, I get it. You're used to commanding. But you've been conquered. Captain is sort of an honorary title at this point. 
I can't let what you want to do get in the way of what I have to do. Kalinda, meanwhile, is distracted by a flower. Smells good. Feels neat. And suddenly we're on the Enterprise, heading for Kelva, traveling at warp 11. One hour to the galactic boundary energy barrier. Kirk heads to sick bay to see how things are going. Spock has located the neural jammer, and he's ready to jam it. They head to engineering, where the jammer is, but encounter a problem. The jammer is encased in the same indestructible metal the bars were made of on the planet. So no jamming the jammer. The only logical thing to do is blow up the ship when they hit the galactic energy barrier, according to Spock. He'll have to run that by the captain, but in the meantime, he gets Scotty working on that plan. Kirk is horrified by the idea. Act 3. Horror wins, and Kirk decides blowing up the ship is not the way to go this time. They break through the energy barrier and settle in for the endless journey to Kelva. Just one thing. There aren't enough resources to keep everyone alive forever, plus there are too few Kelvins to guard everyone. The Kelvins are reducing most of the Enterprise crew to styrofoam blocks. Careful where you step, and where you sit, there are crushable officers everywhere. Eventually, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Scotty are the only Starfleet officers walking and talking. By the way, Kirk, we know about the plan to blow up the ship. Don't you think this was better? Tomar, one of the Kelvins, comes in to guard the four while they eat. And what's up with eating, by the way? You could take nutrient pills like these and have all the nutrients you need. Bone suggests Tomar try some food. And boy, does he like it. He is totally distracted by the taste, the sensation. Spock says his mind meld images are starting to make sense. The Kelvins got rid of distractions like taste, touch, and emotions ages ago. But now, in human form, they've got no idea how to deal with them. And now Kirk and company have a plan. Play to the Kelvins' newfound humanity and the new sensations associated with it. Scotty gets Tomar drunk, Kirk seduces Kalinda, Bones drugs Hanar into a state of agitation, and Spock plays Rojan's newfound jealousy of Kirk over Kalinda against him. That starts in Act 3 and ends in Act 4, which we'll get to now. Act 4. Hanar's level of agitation comes to a boil. He confronts Rojan. Scotty drinks Tomar under the table. Kalinda wants to keep kissing Kirk, and that puts Rojan in a fighting mode. Sure, he could just turn him into a styrofoam block, but he'd rather beat him to death with his bare hands. While getting his gold-shirted behind handed to him, Kirk makes an argument. If a few days of humanity have turned you into this, imagine how your descendants are going to be greeted when they get back to Kelva. They won't be Kelvins anymore. They'll be aliens and enemies. But here's the thing. We can still talk to Starfleet about getting you some planets on which to live. We could send a robo-ship to Kelva with the offer. What do you say? But if we retain this form, asks Rojan, where will we stay? Well, how about we drop you back off on that planet where we found you? Kalinda realizes she's in love with Rojan, by the way. She'll stay with him. Control of the Enterprise is returned to Kirk, who orders the ship back to its original galaxy. The End. Nice job, Ken. And uh, I just want to say that I'm really glad that we have the return of the galactic barrier oh. that we first met in Where No Man Has Gone Before. Can I tell you there are two times in the notes for this week that the words holy crap appear? <laughs> really? One is holy crap. Something that happened in a previous episode of Star Trek actually affects this one Yeah, with okay. the galactic barrier. And the second time is holy crap. Something else that happened 
happens again. Um, uh, Kirk says, remember when you, you know, tricked the guard with the mind probe on a mini R7? That's that's a taste of Armageddon. That's I mean, he's actually referencing another episode of Star Trek. This is the first time that we don't, you know, have to look at the uh, crew of the Enterprise as a bunch of amnesiacs. Right. (laughs) Right. They actually remember that they've had adventures before and can say, remember that time that we um, learned something? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of exciting. I mean, really kind of exciting to see. That is. That was really cool. Yeah. I, I, was, I was glad to see that. Um, and I, so I, I'm trying to remember, you know, th- this idea of a generation ship, uh, it, it kind of struck me because, of course, it, you and I both, we were watching Star Trek from a young age and probably also absorbing other science fiction at a young age. But I, I think this is one of the first times I really thought about the idea of a generation ship. I'm sure the concept was out there before. I, I haven't done the research to figure out the first mention of it in science fiction but i I think this is one of the first times that it really you know struck me as like oh okay well well this is an interesting idea and you know we still talk about that about the say implausibility of faster than light travel and so what do we do to explore the the galaxy at large well you know one of those things that keeps getting thrown out is you do a a generation ship you do a one-way trip and you send people out. So I, I have to think that this was probably the first time I even wrapped my head around that. Yeah. Unfortunately, I can't remember the first time that idea sort of occurred to me, although it is interesting to think about. Um, oh, that's, that's another thing for another time. That's, that's yeah. like, you know, catch us in a bar or, you know, right, right, right. at a dinner well, party. It, and we could talk over it, you know, a bunch of different <laughs> ways to, to, to do that. I mean, Robert J. Sawyer right. has a really neat one in MindScan that has actually nothing or almost nothing to do with travel. Mm-hmm. As far as, you know, reaching uh, um, intelligent life, uh, communicating rather with intelligent life on other planets. Well, and what's cool is it, it's the one of those kind of rare early moments where you do kind of put the perspective of the galaxy and then what lays beyond the galaxy into perspective. Um, Whether it's scientifically accurate or not, the idea of saying, well, it would take us thousands of years to get from here to here. They're going to change the ship. It'll take 300 years. And, you know, all these kind of things you add up. I, you know, I I think I thought about that again uh, in Next Gen and particularly in Voyager where they do kind of map out like, okay, here's what we're talking about when we're talking about these vast distances, whether it's inside our own galaxy or even with the thought of something beyond our own galaxy going to another galaxy. And I I guess it always drives me crazy when people describe uh, Star Trek as being intergalactic and and I think no no we we pretty much are always in our galaxy because we have to be <laughs> because the the distances of being outside of our own galaxy would be too vast and uh, this crew would be very very old by the time they got anywhere else. Plus, there's the energy barrier. There is that energy barrier. <laughs> so here's so, so here's a question that doesn't really figure into the rest of it. But when this whole thing is done, do we now have a much better enterprise than we had before? Is now warp eleven call out to the band? Well, by the way, is warp eleven now just like a, like a thing? It's like yeah, yeah, totally. No, we we met these aliens who totally revved up the enterprise. In fact, if you guys want to go to another galaxy. Well, <laughs> there are going to be a few problems, but it's not going to take thousands of years now. It'll be like 300 max. Of course, and, ra- radiation is going to get a little high there in about 
uh, 10 millennia. So right. you know, do what you want to do <laughs> quickly. And also maybe don't make contact with the people there because they tend to conquer. And how much you want to bet that new engine that they put in is the size of a walnut. Just <laughs> Here's what I was wondering. Um, mm-hmm. This robot ship idea, mm-hmm. you think that's actually going to happen? Oh, oh, yeah. Well, because now, well, yeah, a couple of things have to happen. We have to work with the Kelvins. Right. And we got to build the thing. Yeah. <laughs> we got to program it. And we got to well, send it, it out. Well, now building the thing shouldn't be that difficult. They should actually be able to take something like the Galileo and mm-hmm. just, you know, put in some sort of autopilot and then do whatever it is that they did to make the uh, to make the Enterprise go fast. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the, the thing that I wondered about that whole idea, though, is might we also not be looking at a galactic war with the Kelvins in 600 years or so? Because assuming that the Kelvins, you know, help the Federation outfit a ship to make the interstellar journey as fast as possible. There's right. no guarantee that once the offer is made, the 100 tentacled Kelvins who have not spent, you know, a few days human won't just say, <laughs> hey, good news, everybody. There's another galaxy we can conquer. So saddle up. Right. right. And right. That, that assumes that the Federation actually, you know, makes good on the offer <laughs> of building a right. ship instead of just dropping the Kelvins off on the planet, you know, in our galaxy and saying, oh, yeah, we totally sent that robot ship. <laughs> oh come on it's only been like uh what like 700 years maybe they needed time to to consider the offer maybe they have another offer they're weighing don't worry don't we get, give it like another thousand years and seriously you guys have not forgotten about this <laughs> and, you know, we don't really know rojan's relationship with the rest of the kelvins because, <laughs> so you know in several hundred years somebody on kelvin is the, the the ship comes back and they're like Oh, look, it's a ship sent by Rojan with another terrible idea in it. <laughs> That's right. He's like the invader Zim of the Kelvins. <laughs> He's like the B arc from, uh, from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books. <laughs> he, his right. crew was the telephone sanitizers and the, uh, I can't remember what the other professions were. But yeah, <laughs> Andromeda Galaxy is actually going to be fine. And they're back on Calva right now going, they bought the the whole galaxy is going to be uninhabitable story. (laughs) Thank goodness we got rid of Rojan. And then, of course, they're all killed by an unsanitized telephone. So sad for them, too. Hey, uh, when I was a kid, I I distinctly remember uh, that when I first saw this episode, those little dehydrated human foam blocks, they kind of scared the hell out of me. When I was young, I, it was like this weird, you know, existential thing for a seven-year-old to grapple with that uh, the, the, everything that made up that human being was squeezed down into that block that could be crushed. Um, I, I, yeah, I probably had nightmares about it, but yeah, I just had to throw that out. No, that's it's I mean, terrifying uh, to me. It's a totally scary idea. By the time you and I were, let's say, seven, eight, nine years old, I can't remember. There were horrifying statistics when we were kids, though, about you know how many deaths we had already seen and how many shootings we had already seen in primetime television, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the idea of oh, they're going to shoot that guy with a laser—that's not nearly as scary as they're going to turn you into something that's unrecognizable and then maybe crush you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that is actually a, an incredibly freaky, incredibly terrible idea. So I totally get being frightened by that. And wasn't there a similar thing in an episode of Batman? I, I might be confusing it with something else, but I'm pretty sure that in the original Batman series, or maybe the movie, uh, that, that, that somebody had a weapon that would dehydrate a human into a little, a, a little block or a little pile of powder. I don't know. As long as we're doing throwouts to other properties, though, I will tell you that um, Spock's little sort of um, 
hibernation torpor thing really made me mm-hmm. want to read uh, Stranger in a Strange Land again. Mm. Have you read it? Yeah, it's been a long time, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember Valentine Michael Smith being able to uh, to control his body to such a degree that at one point, I mm-hmm. think one of the characters flippantly tells him to drop dead. <laughs> and he apparently considers it. I can't remember if he considered mm-hmm. it or if he actually did, and they revived him before he was completely... Um, before he was completely dead. But anyway, it just reminded me of that briefly. Hey, um, I, during the whole, uh, uh, the, the build up to the climax where they're trying to figure out how do we defeat the, uh, our, our Kelvin captors here on the Enterprise, in my mind, and I'm not sure if you did the same thing, but Kirk was having an internal dialogue and he's sitting there going, hmm, all right, now, Scotty is drinking that one guy under the table and McCoy is introducing food to the other guy what am i really good at what what can i possibly contribute to our situation here what could i do who could i sort of uh uh, throw off their game i'm not sure well i'm not i'm not (laughs) sure it's actually fair to say that it's what he's good at although maybe an argument could be made hey maybe this goes into topics maybe the thing you love to do is also the thing you're best at (laughs) Um, although we do know from, you know, from uh, Trouble with Tribbles and from our conversation in the supplemental with David Gerald, what Scotty loves to do more than anything else is be an engineer. But he can drink. That's like that is another thing that he does like to do. But right. yeah, I mean, we do know that, you know, Spock loves playing mind games with people. <laughs> we do know mm-hmm. that Scotty mm-hmm. Scotty can enjoy a drink from time to time. Uh, we do know that uh, Kirk does like kissing the ladies. And uh, and if there's one thing that McCoy loves, it is shooting people up with junk, <laughs> because that's how he gets Hanar, right? Just like yeah, that is. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna just I'm gonna roll up your sleeve. I, don't even roll up your sleeve. You know what? I'm I can probably hit a vein from here. Don't worry, this is gonna be fine. <laughs> wait, wait, what's the old What's the old adage? Is like, um, you, you know, to a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Yes. And, you know, you think, because you kind of apply that to psychology to say that, you know, well, people who only see patients with this particular problem, they, they start to kind of see the world that way. And I'm thinking, you know, well, McCoy, he, he sees any problem as something that he can defeat with a hypo spray. Kirk sees any problem as something he can make out with. You know, Rojan could be a James Bond villain. Seriously, never tell the good guy how your secret weapon works. Shall we quickly uh, talk about the title of this, sh- uh, this episode by any other name? I think we must. All right. Yeah. It's called out in the show when Kalinda quizzes uh, Kirk over flowers. And Kirk's like, yeah, it's a flower. I don't know what it's called. It's a flower. And she says, oh, we have something like that on Kelva. I've heard about it in the memory tapes that, um, you know, crystals that, that seem to grow. And, you know, she uh, indicates that they're beautiful. And Kirk says, uh, a rose by any other name. And she doesn't know what that means. So he tells her it's a Shakespeare quote. He doesn't say it's a Shakespeare quote from Romeo and Juliet, but it is. And if you want to play the Shakespeare game for 30 more seconds, um, Romeo and Juliet gets a second call out, I think, when Rojan forbids Kalinda from seeing Kirk, but she goes ahead and sees him anyway, uh, leading to the ruin of her house, though thankfully not both houses, which was, you know, the fate of Romeo and Juliet. Right. And no one has to die except for the red skirt, but, you know, she was already dead. That's not a result of Kalinda's uh, seeing Kirk. Right. right. Yeah. 
I mean, no, but, no, but yeah. no big, huge thing there. But I just thought because I hate when they just throw the title in and it's like, okay, whoa, why, why is it called this? Oh, because remember he said like the changeling. Oh, nomad <laughs> is learning. Is oh, like a changeling? Well, no, <laughs> <laughs> like an evolving artificial intelligence. But you know, if you want to call it a changeling, that's fine. So, yeah, making the yeah. title make sense. That's actually kind of fun. Plus, it's Shakespeare. Well, it is, and and Star Trek has this uh, kind of a, a fetish for Shakespeare because we see uh, titles and phrases pop up all over Star Trek. Was uh, it so? That's kind of cool. Was it Scott Mans who said when Star Trek has nothing to talk about, it talks about Shakespeare? <laughs> there you go. I believe that's what I believe it was Scott. I can't remember, but anyway, go yeah. ahead. Well, and, and by any other name, I, my sort of application of the title, other than the that scene that you just described uh, it, to me was the idea that, um, you know, a human by any other name is a human. So here, here are these Kelvins who have taken on human form and uh, to, to get to the bottom of their plot to, uh, to, to undo what they're doing. Kirk and McCoy and Spock uh, approach this with they and Scotty rather uh, approach this with their human flaws in mind. So their jealousy or in Scotty's case, drinking. That's a lot of drinking, by the way. That's the most drinking we've seen out of Scotty. Yeah, so, it's a lot of drinking. But, uh, you know, here we are with an episode again where the human form is to blame. The, the heightened senses, feeling, hearing, all of that. Um, and, and you're sort of presented with this idea, is it just the form itself that provides too much temptation or is it the exposure to humans? Because they, they actually, Kirk says, the exposure to us uh, might be heightening what's going on. Um, and it's kind of like our friends in Cat's Paw, the little tiny uh, fur coat wearing prawns <laughs> <laughs> who, who took on human form and then were too tempted to be able to carry out their mission, whatever that mission may have been. Right. Or like Hanok and um, Return to Tomorrow. Mm. Mm-hmm. They had this whole robot yeah. body idea, which, I mean, you got the sense in Return to Tomorrow that Hanok was going to try to screw up anything anyway because he was the Loki of the of the show. Right, um, right. But yeah, I mean, he really wasn't going to be a robot. And neither was, I can't remember her name now, but the Diana Muldaur character also wasn't going to be a robot because it turns out what she likes is the, you know, the tasting and the touching and the kissing and the what have you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's just it. I mean, the, the, the jealousy, the rage, the passion, uh, all of these things get the better of them. And they can't imagine how terrible that would be traveling for 300 years in a confined space. And I have to tell you, I'm right there with them. I can't imagine how terrible that would be traveling in a confined space for an entire lifetime um, with people who are experiencing the same thing. People would drive each other nuts. Well, I mean, they would. The thing is, though, I'm not sure it's fair to say that it's their jealousy and rage and passion that got the better of them. I mean, this Mm. this is really more like when colonists in North America gave Native Americans liquor or, or smallpox, um, but really liquor, uh, maybe smallpox mm-hmm. too. I mean, you know, left to sort of uh, absorb everything on their own and certainly left to suss out being human over 300 years, it's quite possible that the Kelvins, you know, could have figured out being human. But, you know, they, they didn't really have that opportunity. I mean, they just, mm-hmm. I mean, like Kirk and, and Spock and McCoy and Bones just laid it all on. Like the second Spock sees any jealousy in Rojan, he's like, wow, you're jealous, huh? You know why? Because the girl <laughs> you love is like making out with my captain. And meanwhile, right. you know, she was not making eyes at him at all. But Kirk's like, hey, you know, it'd be great. Mm-hmm. Right? And of course, then there's, <laughs> yep, yep. there's Pusher McCoy. I mean, I mean, so it's not like it's not like just being human did this. 
<laughs> because I mean, <laughs> they were human and it's sort of like, wow. I mean, they're even starting to say, eh, it's kind of weird, right? The feeling, the, you know, the, the, the sensations, all that kind of mm-hmm. weird. And then, you know, the enterprise is like, let's turn it up 12 notches. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the enterprise shouldn't have done that. They, you know, not only saved their own lives and the lives of their crew members, um, they also averted, well, theoretically, averted a um, galactic war. Although I don't think we'll know that for another 700 to 1,000 years. <laughs> right. But, but you know, we, we get to show off again how, how much better the real humans deal with their uh, their emotions. Yeah, you know, we've done that a couple of times in Star Trek, a few times in Star Trek. You know, the real humans can keep their emotions in check. They can be productive and not let these things distract them. So maybe that's a little bit of carbon chauvinism or, or at least some human chauvinism um, on display here. Uh, but because the, the irrationality and, and volatility of human emotions is what Kirk uses to undo them. Um, and, and it's interesting that it's another superior species that we encounter that needs to, brought, needs to be brought down a notch. Hmm. The other thing, though, that, uh, that I think is pretty uh, impressive here is that according to the Kelvins, what we know from Rogen describing their, their situation at Andromeda uh, is that pretty much as a planet or, or as a confederation of the, the Kelvin Empire – Everybody has gotten together and decided on this plan. You know, they're, they're facing a natural disaster. They all got on the same page about a long-term solution. And I kept thinking, you know, we're not very good at that as, as human beings. So maybe there is something to learn from the Kelvins here. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we still argue about global warming and, and all these kinds of and And everybody has a say, uh, but then you sort of stagnate and can't come up with a plan to, to do something about it. Um, well, yeah, but I mean, you're only hearing from one guy, right? I mean, there might still be people in Kelva. I mean, take it to a uh, Superman. <laughs> yeah, right. Jarrell thought, Hey, you know what we need to do? We need to get off this rock because this rock's going to explode and all the rocks around it are going to explode. And most everybody else on, uh, on Krypton, depending on which, you know, which origin story you're listening to, Everybody sure. else on Krypton said, you're high. This planet's going to be fine, <laughs> and you are not allowed to leave the planet because you're going to freak everybody out. But Jarrell knows the planet's going to be destroyed, so he sends, you know, he sends, uh, he sends Kal-El uh, rocketing towards the planet Earth. Um, so they were still debating when that happened. And, and mm-hmm. certainly mm-hmm. had Jarrell been allowed to leave the planet, he might have said, yeah, so here's what happened. Whereas if somebody else from the planet you know, was forced off and didn't know that the planet had exploded – they they would have a completely different story. So, I mean, and same mm-hmm. thing with us. Mm-hmm. I mean, you meet somebody. Well, not you necessarily. A lot of times when somebody meets somebody, they will tell them the world as they see it. They will tell them the plan as they understand it. Right? Right. A lot of people are not going to say, so I think this, but a lot of people think this. I mean, it's pretty much, it's sort of like history is written by the victors. You know, yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. This is sort of like, okay, well, right. this story is being told by the people who came out to tell this story. There may yeah. still be people on Kelva going, yeah, I'm not buying this radiation story. <laughs> but, but here, here's a ship. You go. <laughs> <laughs> Tell them what you want to. I don't care. What's it like 300, 400 years? I'm going to be so dead by then. Please. Go ahead. Go yeah. on. But, do but, do, but, do but, your thing. But there is an interesting thing here, though, about because um, you, you mentioned that uh, what Rojan has to do. Um, is, is to carry out this mission. And, and I was wondering, well, is this at all a moral compromise for the Kelvins? You know, the, this is 
he said that this is their mission and what they do is they conquer. So we assume they've had generations and generations of people just going out to conquer. Mm -hmm. Um, But what he has to do is something that Kirk definitely does not want him to do. Um, Kirk is trying to present the, hey, can't we all just get along and we'll help you and we'll find planets. And uh, Rojan says, no, 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 this is what we have to do. But I wonder if that would be something that under another context, uh, the Kelvins would not do because they would recognize sort of the, the moral problem with just conquering and taking something, even if it meant killing and destroying another species in the process. You know, you, you think about us, like if we do face a natural disaster or something like that, and, and, and we have to, oh, I don't know, take land, right? you know, move into another area of the earth, wh- whatever that may be. Um, do we compromise sort of what we say are ideals because there's a matter of survival at stake? You know, we, we do that all the time in, in big ways and in small ways, uh, but we don't know enough about the Kelvins. We're sort of given the singular picture of them as being conquerors. Well, we do know enough about the Kelvins, though, don't we? I mean, the second that they... I mean, Kirk's got the upper hand. I, I know I said that Kirk was having his gold shirted behind handed to him in that fight, but actually towards the end of the <laughs> fight, uh, Kirk's got his arm around Rojan's neck. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's mm-hmm. he could choke the life out of him at this point. And it is yeah. at that point that he kind of does, you know, that thing like he did in the Corbomite maneuver where, where there's Balog is Balog is out there, you know, floating around dead as far as they all know or about to die. And he says, look, we're going to we're going to take the we're going to take the high ground here. We're going to go back and help him because that's what we do. He could, you know, Rojan was fine killing the red skirt. He was fine turning everybody else into little styrofoam blocks. He was absolutely mm-hmm. fine. You know, he's willing to kill Kirk if things go too far. And And so at that point, Kirk literally with the power of life and death over Rojan says, now, do you want to talk about how we can all live together? Yeah. So, and, and at that point, Rojan's like, yeah, you know, that's starting to sound like a good idea to me. <laughs> so, I, mean, it's, I mean, he's not so single-minded. I mean, it's not like, uh, it's not like, um, well, stepping incredibly out of the timeline, although about 20 years earlier than this episode would have happened. It's not like Nero, you know, when, when, yeah, when yeah. Kirk offers Nero in, um, in uh, the reboot of Star Trek in 2009. When Kirk offers Nero a hand and Nero's like, I'd rather, you know, I'd rather eat, eat bees. I'd rather, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, whatever he says. And it's, it's a bit stronger in effective than I'd rather eat bees. But yeah. he basically tells Kirk, you know, that he would rather, well, eat bees than accept help from Kirk. And so then Kirk kills mm-hmm. him, you know. <laughs> kind yeah. of raises the question of what, you know, Kirk would have done if, if, if like, with his arm around Rojan's neck, Rojan was like, nope, seriously, if you let me go, I'm going to conquer you. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we still have to hope that the, uh, the rest of the Kelvins can be... Uh, you know, reasoned with in such a way. But we've got 600 years to worry about that. Be talked into it. Yeah, that's true. I'll tell you, you know what this episode made me think of, and this is going to sound weird? Mm-hmm. Well, and surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> made me think of our relations with modern-day China, um, which I know is probably kind of odd, but here's why it made me think of this. Um, we do a lot of trading with China, and there are those who think that that's a good idea, and there are those mm-hmm. who think that that's a bad idea. What I think is it's a complex idea. I, I, mm-hmm. I honestly... I have tried before to decide, to decide whether it's good or bad, and I'm, I'm at a loss. Uh, the people who say it's a good idea have an easy argument for why it's a good idea for the U.S., because we get cheap stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, you can debate whether that's actually good for the U.S., um, because that means people here are not making TVs that are more expensive and you know things like that. But you know, 
Let's not have that argument today. That's another one for that <laughs> for that bar or dinner party that we were talking about right. sometime down the road. Right. right. One of the primary arguments for why it's good for the people of China is um, we trade with China. China makes more stuff. China needs more people to make more stuff. More Chinese people make more money from making that more stuff. And then with more money, they demand a more westernized lifestyle. And eventually, um, theoretically, you've got a better form mm. of government and a better quality of life for the Chinese people, all because I got two blankets for $10 at Walmart. Mm. Now, that's definitely an oversimplification of the argument. And even that oversimplification might fold under you know scrutiny, but mm-hmm. there's sort of a basic idea of why that thing is good. Let's introduce them to our way of life, and they'll become our friends and allies. And that's kind of what we do in this episode. The problem is where, where it gets a little uh, hinky. Uh, like I said before, we do that in this episode by playing to their lust, their gluttony, their wrath, and their envy. Yeah, all <laughs> things which I support. Yeah. Yeah, well, also, <laughs> four of these seven deadly sins, it turns out. Yeah. So maybe it's not the best argument, but that's, yeah, that's what it made me think of. Um, to one extent, you could say, you know, by finding commonalities, we can make friends of our enemies. Uh, to another, you could say, uh, by exploiting weakness, uh, we can disable our enemies. And <laughs> hopefully, uh, we're doing the former, not the latter, with, uh, you know, with, with uh, countries and governments and peoples around the world. But I guess we got about 600 years to figure that one out, too. Yeah, well, they're appealing to their humanity. Which uh, obviously they are not humans, but in this form they are human, and they're, they're they're making an appeal to the humanity, to their emotional sides, their emotional lives, and um, and finding that common ground, and, and like you said, disabling them as enemies. So there, there is something like you know, I end this going, hey, look, you know, friendship just saved the day because our, our enemies found common ground, and that's kind of a beautiful thing. Um, it, it's sort of is a condemnation, we, we've looked at this before, of that when you go too far down the path of only being logical, you know, only being a, a single thing, then this is a dangerous path to go down. We, we, we've seen that every now and then. Um, but this presents that sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, holistic idea of, uh, of an existence being better when you can marry the logical side with the emotional side and uh, and find that common ground it's a beautiful thing ken worthwhile worth nothing what name would you give by any other name so ken it's happened again We've come to the end of a mission log episode where we get to dig a little deeper and figure out what held up, what didn't, and what did we learn. So if I pose a question to you, Ken, uh, does this episode, as a production, as a story, does it hold up? Yes. Yes. I would say yes. Uh, I would say yes. I mean, it's not the most exciting episode of Star Trek that you've ever had, and certainly there's a whole lot of exposition that goes on. First half of this episode is really just talking. Mm-hmm. You know, talking about, you know, well, here's who we are. And, and, and well, now here's the situation that we're in. I mean, there's very there's a there's a whole lot of standing around talking in this episode. Not the most exciting, not the most swashbuckling episode you'll ever see. Um, a little bit annoying that we do kind of have cat's paw again, but it is a better treatment of that. 
Um, mm-hmm. Maybe it's maybe it's because of the way that you and I watch these. I mean, this is the third time that we've hit this in this season. There's Cat's Paw. There's um, there's Hanok from uh, Return to Tomorrow. But I would still say it works. I mean, it, it's still it's still it's still a fun episode. Um, I don't feel like there is. I personally don't feel like there is a you see Temmie moment. Um, but the messages that we talked about are, are, are all food for thought. I think I don't mm-hmm. think there's one that's superior because I mean it, so- it sounds to me like you're sort of siding with friendship wins the day and and I'm thinking eh, friendship wins the day after you weaken somebody to the point that their only choices are either be your friend or be stuff on a rock. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But but that said, there's a lot of stuff in there to uh, there's a lot of stuff in there to uh, to sort of uh, mull over and suss out. At least that was my yeah. take on it. What about you? Well, there's a lot that I like about this episode. And like you said, it, it is very talky at, at the beginning. And it's interesting. You know, I, I do urge people to go look at that discovered document because you'll see that the the structure and the pacing is very different. Uh, it takes even longer to get them back to the Enterprise <laughs> to play this out. There's a lot of chatter about what's going on, although there are more uh, more deaths, more crude deaths in the original draft than we have here. Like you said, we just... Just have the one um, in the final version. Now, um, now, were those deaths people accidentally stepping on crew members? <laughs> no. <laughs> when he's no, walking no. down the hall and it's like, oh, golly, I don't, you know, probably I no. should pick those up, but that's kind of creepy. Yeah, oh, I got dehydrated human all over the bottom of my boot. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Who is that? Uh, I don't know. Um, but I, I do, uh, in this episode, very much like uh, Barbara Boucher and Warren Stevens, uh, Kalinda and Rojan. I, I think uh, the way that Stevens presents himself as Rojan, he has this great kind of commanding yet alien look. I mean, he's just a guy in an orange jumpsuit, but he really sells it. He, he's really quite good in this. Um, and once we kind of get past the things that are the uh, budget limitations of TV, you know, we're on a fake planet set, which is fine. And we're dealing with the, as we keep saying, the the styrofoam blocks that are humans, which are the simplest, cheapest thing to do. But it's really effective here. Yeah. So um, th- there's a lot that works for this episode despite itself. Um, and I like that we mull over these topics. Uh, uh, yeah, humanity friendship sort of saves the day in the end and uh, we are saying hey uh, underneath it all we're just humans we're a a festering confusion of emotions even if we're not human (laughs) we we can figure out a way to appeal to your emotional human side even if you were just a hundred tentacled alien trying to uh, take over our galaxy um so there's cool stuff here and and there are fun moments um certainly the scotty scene they play out to a a great length but it is fun and and it is sort of a classic moment what is it and the punchline is it's 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 green green yes (laughs) you know he said that and i was like wow i've had a night or two like that right (laughs) what is this it's well yeah brown yeah yeah that'll work it'll do and even with Kirk, there's the we've kind of established the, this bit, particularly after Games of Triskelion, that that's where Kirk does. He can seduce his way out of the problem. <laughs> so we're kind of expecting it. Um, oh, I know what you're talking about. We didn't even mention that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're trying to seduce me. 
<laughs> well, I was. Uh, it, sorry. See ya. Yeah, that is a lot of fun. That is a lot of fun when she just totally calls him on it in a different way. Oh, that's interesting. She did that in Cat's Paw, too. But this time, she's mm-hmm. she's actually okay with it. She's like, oh, I know what you're doing. Go mm-hmm. ahead. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, I'm going to stay with Rojan. Yeah, right. Cause, um, and, you, and you know, inside, Kirk was like, whew. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't think anybody said anything about her staying on the Enterprise. Did they, Rojan? Oh, you don't want to stay on the Enterprise? Oh, honey, I'm so sorry. Well, bye. <laughs> right, right. So, for all those reasons, I, I feel like the episode really holds up. And uh, as far as lessons learned, well, it's not, you know, like you said, there's not a big hit you ever had lesson to be learned. Um, but there are great moments to to mull over. And, and I think we hit those pretty well in our uh, in our topics um, uh, about being able to parallel this to some modern day issues, but also uh, uh, Star Trek's continued exploration of humanity and, and, and emotion being able to balance that out with our logical selves. So um, all in all, I quite enjoyed it. Continued exploration is what Star Trek does, and continued exploration of Star Trek is what we do, and we will do that next week with The Omega Glory. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. I think Shakespeare was selfish. Star Trek quotes him all the time, but did he ever once quote Star Trek? and transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.